I did have as a plan that we would talk about, since it's the first class of this new year, uh, if you're counting by the the calendar that we are mostly in this country, um, as the first class, and it's traditional to say, uh, all right, what what are your intentions for this year? What's your plan? And uh, and so it was kind of a, a giveaway that I would be thinking in terms of what do I hope is going to happen with my own practice? And so I thought I was going to talk about what's my own practice and what does it mean to have a practice? And all of you have a practice of being, whether you, you're sure you do, because here you are uh, on this Wednesday morning, where it's still Wednesday, tuning in. So you are interested in the practice of waking up. I was teaching on New Year's Day, and uh, I said, I, I said in the course of teaching somewhere, I said, you know, what we're calling mindfulness practice these days, when you say I'm going to a mindfulness class, or I teach mindfulness, is mindfulness is the, the word, it's a proper word, and it's the word that took over from the word vipassana. When I began to do um, um, meditative practice uh, in 1977, gosh, that seems now like it's like, Right back there. And, uh, anyway, it's a long time ago. It's, it's 45 years ago, I think. It is 45 years ago. Amazing. And when I began, it was called Vipassana practice. And we went on Vipassana retreats. Um, and I had to work on how to spell it because it has two S's in it. And not two P. V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. I remember re- teaching myself you had to put in two S's. And then I learned that the word vipassana means to see clearly. And then I've I've been thinking more and more recently that uh, it's uh, it's probably a better word to describe what, as far as I'm concerned, what we are doing here, what we're trying to do here. And say, well, what's your, do you have a, 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 a practice that you do every day? Like you play the piano or you... Uh, do 10,000 steps on your Fitbit or something that you do every single day and say, yeah, I spend uh, uh, X amount of time really thinking about or feeling like I'm practicing my practice of seeing clearly. And it's a, it, uh, it, it's a really provocative term because uh, we, uh, I mean, we always figure that we're seeing clearly uh, a friend of mine, uh, not any longer alive, told me, one of my teachers actually a long time ago, said his child came in to his bedroom one early one morning and said, uh, Papa, you know, when you get up in the morning, you were sleeping and then you're awake, you get up. And he said, yes. And the child said, once you're up, can you wake more up than up? And that's a great, really, question. Because this practice of contemplative awareness, of trying to hone our the habits of our mind so that we can see clearly what's happening in, in moment to moment and respond to it in a way that doesn't create suffering for other people or for ourselves, that's really what that we're practicing. So it's not just visually to see clearly. I could wipe my glasses or fix the prescription or something but to see clearly really in a in a depth way 
It's a see and understanding, you know, that, uh, oh, uh, if, if you're standing on a street corner, uh, I was telling the story the other day of standing on a street corner on, in New York and hearing uh, a screech of brakes and uh, a block away uh, hearing a, a, an accident happen. And everybody's standing a block away and poised on the on the sidewalk there. And everybody, not everybody, but the people around me, somebody said um, to their child, see, I told you, that's why you're not supposed to step off the sidewalk. And another person said to the, the other child that was there, come on, let's get out of here. Let's go home. And another person said, wait a minute, we have to make sure that somebody called the paramedics. And somebody else said, I saw the paramedics and they're taking care of it. I don't have to stay. And I thought later on that I thought all of those things. I thought all of those things like I wish I wasn't here. And uh, it made me a little bit more frightened about being out in the street that a lot of responses happen. And those are all, uh, they're all appropriate responses. Uh, maybe the most appropriate is let's wait and see that somebody really did call the, the paramedics. But what I've come to see, and what I was going to talk about today and probably this whole year, is that seeing clearly involves seeing really what's happening and deriving from that the next question and answer, which is, what should I do about it? In that particular case, somebody was calling the paramedics. I could leave at that point. And I could really be more careful about don't step off the curb. Now I am I'm really aware of, as years go by, I'm really careful about not stepping off the curb earlier. Uh, and really looking at the numbers that come up about how many seconds you have left to cross the street. But just in general, to the, it seems to me now that the operative question is always, what's happening and what should I do now to not make this situation worse for myself or anybody else? Because then I'll feel bad about it. That the, the purpose of mindfulness practice is really, really to see clearly and not act um, heedlessly. And really, really, when I don't act as long as I'm alive, to say it's a miracle. Days go by, days go by, and here we still are. Uh, my father, who was not very pious in the sense of um, doing a lot of ritual prayer, uh, would from time to time sit down. At, at the, we always sat down for dinner together. And we didn't say a grace or a blessing most of the time. But every once in a while, he would think about it. And then he would say, well, in a very solemn way, he, he was being friendly about it. He'd say, well, here we are again, God. And that was the end of the grace. You know, like, here we are all gathered together. And he'd say, here we are again, God. And I thought that was a great grace because really, here we are again, God. And it could be, never mind if it's God and you have a feeling about God or not have a feeling about God, because here we are again is this time. And if we realize that come to the end of a day and here we are again and we're still here, it's a moment to think, I appreciate that. I had for a long time a um, a practice of 
writing every single day. I, I hadn't planned to tell you this, but now I am. I, and I did it for about two years with a friend of mine. We were sitting in a room of teachers talking and someone said, I have a gratitude practice at the end of every day. I write to my friend so-and-so. I write an email, and it's not an email in the sense of giving news. I went to the dentist, or I did this or that or the other. It simply is, today I am grateful for da 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 da, -da whatever it is, uh, that I went to the dentist and they didn't find new problems to deal with, or that the email I was expecting finally did arrive and I could take it, or the snow has melted enough for me to feel able to go take a walk or whatever it was. But something that had directed my mind in the in the direction of this was an up moment. Uh, and I, I think at the time I would have said uh, I would have been surprised, first of all, to see how potent that was every single day uh, and how much I came away from it. I don't remember. I think that. Uh, my partner in that moved to actually moved to Europe and had a long job that was complicated. It wasn't it didn't work to have the 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 requirement of did you write to Sylvia or did I write to her every single day. But while it was going on, I thought that one moment of being able to say, and that moment I really appreciated that I'm here this day. Uh and I thought, really, this gratitude practice, it was not what I was going to tell you today, but maybe maybe I will at the end for a homework. But what I wanted to do today, I will get around to it, is talk about what in the long run, it's not that all different, is it? What in the long run is the um, goal of my being able to say and mean it? I really plan for mindfulness. I really, my goal in paying attention, which is what mindfulness is, my goal is to habituate my mind to a warm and kind response to all my life that happens to me. That's my goal. Um, I don't know. I, I really did not have a clear idea of a goal when I started. I, I'm actually a little embarrassed about that because... Um, some maybe certainly months and maybe years after I started, um, there was some important Tibetan teacher who came to teach uh, as a guest at Spirit Rock, who said the most important thing about practice is clarity about purpose. What's your goal? And I thought, oh, dear, I started with a, a somewhat ignoble goal, I guess. I started, I went on my first retreat because people were going on retreats in the 70s. It was the in thing to do. And it was very, it was hip. You know, you, you, you either found a teacher here or all the better, you went to Europe or you went to Asia or you went to India. You made a pilgrimage and it was, everybody was doing it. So I did. And on my first retreat, there was in the living room of this private house. I didn't go to India or someplace mystical and exotic. I, I went to Santa, I went to Santa Cruz to a weekend retreat in a house where there was a uh, 
little plaque on the uh, mantelpiece in the living room that said, uh, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I was so moved by that, I think, that even though the weekend was very unpleasant for me, was too crowded, maybe 20 people crowded in to uh, a small garage that had been converted into a, um, a meditation room. We were sleeping on uh, sleeping bags on the floor in two bedrooms, one or just wherever you put down a sleeping bag, that's where you slept. And 20 people in those two rooms getting dressed and undressed right where they were. There was no, everybody was much younger than I was. I was 40, I guess I was 40, 41, something like that, 42, 41. And I would think they were, they were all late 20s and they had just gotten back from being in India or being here or being there. And I'd just gotten there from having four children at home and having a full-time job. And so uh, I was not used to getting dressed and undressed in those kind of close quarters. And I definitely wasn't used to not having coffee and I had a terrible headache. And at the end, I ended up um, signing up for a um, two-week retreat couple of months hence up in Oregon and I think it was from the plaque on the mantelpiece that said life is so difficult how can we be anything but kind uh I don't know I don't know if I I still think it's the most important thing I thought we would do as we usually do but we didn't today is already not usually but I thought we would do uh uh, I'm looking at the clock, it's 10.30. I thought we would do a meditation on, um, well, you'll tell me what's on when we're finished, why I thought of this meditation and not another one. Life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? So I'm going to change my screen so I'm not looking at me. And I invite you to look at your screen and look at everybody. And I also invite you, if you can, to turn on your picture. So, I mean, assuming you're dressed and all that. Uh, uh, and maybe not for the whole time, but for a little while, for the meditation while, turn on your picture. Not if you're in Istanbul, because you can record it and do it later. But um, if you're in a place where you can. Because what I'd like you to do is look at the people in the picture. There's maybe somebody there that, that you know. And that uh, there are a couple of people who are personal friends of mine who are out there that I'm looking at. And when I see somebody who I know, I, 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 I know and recognize Rivka because she's been on retreat with me a lot, and Victoria, and Dwayne, and uh, let's see, uh, and Bonnie, and Bob, and 
da, 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 da. a lot of people. Cindy. Anyway. So I'm looking at the people that I know. And I'm going to look at somebody. I'm going to find two people that I don't know. I'm happy to see the people that I know. I say, oh, look at that. There's so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. Pick out somebody that you don't know. And make up some New Year's wishes for them, especially you don't know them at all. Make up a wish like, uh, I hope you have a good day and a good week. And I hope the year is starting well, or I hope your health is good, or I hope your uh, life is unfolding comfortably for you. Whatever you'd say to a stranger that you really don't know, well, things are good with you. I really do hope it. And I know, because I don't know if you're looking at me or you're looking at each other. That as soon as I started thinking, what if this person could really hear what I'm thinking for them? And then when I think that, my heart picks up a little bit. Because now I've made them familiar to me. Then either close your eyes or look away. Close your eyes is a good idea. And let your breath come in and out. Another practice that I like to feel that's a physical body awareness is I like to feel my whole body getting a wee bit larger as if when the breath comes in, as if I can really feel that my body for the length of the in-breath takes up a little bit more of the space in the world. You can imagine that. I'm sure it does. I sit up a little taller and my shoulders go a little bit more back. My arms lift up a little bit to the side. Even my bottom pushes down a little bit more on the chair I'm sitting on. It's not a big amount bigger, but maybe I'm a half, a half an inch or a quarter of an inch more space in the world that I take up. It's like I'm moving into the world and then back down into myself. Instead of one breath at my 
heart center, one breath at my nostrils, one breath with my whole body moving out and touching the world and then coming back to itself and then touching the world and then coming back to itself. as I said, I can even play with that a little bit as I can, I can think as I breathe in and my body reaches out to the whole universe around it. That a lot of people breathing in at that moment or a lot of people breathing out, my breathing in is pushing their breath out and their breathing, breathing in is pulling my breath out. And then maybe we're all breathing ourselves, each other into life one breath at a time. I like to think that along with the trees and the other green things around, breathing themselves and each other into life. Every time I breathe out more carbon dioxide then the trees have more carbon dioxide to breathe in. And they breathe out more oxygen for me to breathe. There's a way in which when I'm aware of that sense, we are all breathing each other into life, one breath after another. It makes a different feeling in everybody's mind, of course. So feel what you feel in your mind with that pleasant, unpleasant, When you open your eyes in a minute, which is what we'll do right away, look around and see if you can find the person that you picked out and see if, well, just see how is your, how does your body respond to somebody who you have chosen as your partner for now, this moment in time, even though they don't know it. So open your eyes when you're ready and look around and find your person that you picked out. I don't think anybody knows who really picked out who, but if you see who you picked out, wave at them. You don't know if they're waving back at you or not at you. Well, it feels good. How does that feel? Anybody wants to say, you have to push your I want to say something button. 
have to go look on my other page, see if somebody on the other page wants to say something. Oh, Victoria, there you are, dear. Yeah, it just, um, it's just so great to make a new friend, like a secret friend, but <laughs> I love it. I love, I love the idea of it. I, I think we could even do it maybe when we're like riding subway or, or, you know, I guess you have to be careful that people don't think you're like staring at them, but, but the idea of just sending love out to, to perfect strangers, it binds us together. Exactly. So I'm, I hope that you all felt that and were just shy to say it. Because really, I want to talk about that business of looking out there and thinking, what if we all thought affectionate thoughts, not on on inappropriate affectionate thoughts, but there's a person just like me having a life just today. Because I, 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 I keep thinking if the whole world... That's going to sound simplistic, probably. If the whole world looked around and said, what are we doing to each other? Yesterday, I we all did. I got up in the morning and could not avoid seeing a headline that said 80 Russian soldiers were killed in one strike. And I thought to myself, 80 mothers in Russia at the same moment just found out that their son had died in a war in another country that they didn't choose to be at. There, there must be some. I mean, I know because in history, eighty and uh, and uh, a dozen and six million and fifty million and you know, don't know what amount of it's going to take for people to say we can't do this anymore. This isn't good. I think why I am doing this practice is I want to have nothing but kindness in my mind. And I think it's a possibility. I really do. I didn't know that. When I started to practice, I wanted to glow in the dark or I wanted to get over my um, nervousness about whatever it was. Or I wanted, I knew some people could levitate and I would have never said I want to levitate because that, that doesn't happen. But... I really wanted something amazing to happen to me. I'm kind of a show off. So if it happened to other people, I wanted it to happen to me, but I wouldn't say so. The glow in the dark, I particularly was a, a pleasing to me, but that didn't happen. And that's not supposed to happen. I think I'll, I want to read you something. This is unusual. I don't usually read something that I've written, but I was thinking about it this morning. I said, I'll tell that story. And then I said, well, why don't I could read it? I don't know if I could read it, I could tell it. But I wrote it very well. <laughs> A long time ago, 20 years ago. So I was uh, I was teaching a retreat in uh, Massachusetts, I think. And a magazine journalist interviewed me on the telephone for an article about newly emerging religious forms. He wanted to know what I thought about people mixing and matching religions. And I responded clearly disingenuously, given that I am both a Buddhist teacher and a Jew. Are people doing that? The interviewer said, yes, indeed. People are just taking what they like and making up their own religions. 
like salad religions, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Whatever they like, they mix it in. Do you think it's bad or good? I said, well, I don't know if it's bad or good. If people are doing it, maybe it's a reflection of what the psychoanalyst Eric Erickson called the American character. He believed we were inspired by what we think of as the pioneer spirit, like cowboys, independent, able to go out on the range alone, taking the best of what's available and making it work. And maybe it also means that people are realizing that what seemed important to them in their life, materialism and consumerism, doesn't work at all to make a happy heart. It actually makes an unhappy heart and an unhappy world. And maybe people are discovering that they really need something that speaks to the essence of their being, something that connects them directly with conscious intention to the truth of their experience so that their lives become meaningful. Maybe it's a good thing, he said, but do you think it could be dangerous? I said, I don't know if it could be dangerous. I suppose there might be a pitfall. What would the pitfall be, he said. I replied, well, if you were in a religion all by yourself, you'd have nobody to encourage you if you weren't making progress to tell you that's great. You wouldn't have anybody to tell you that you were deluding yourself and that nothing was happening. What's supposed to happen? He said, I said, what's supposed to happen? What's supposed to happen is that our vision becomes transformed. We begin to see with increasing clarity how much confusion and suffering there is in our own minds and hearts. And we also see the way in which our own personal suffering creates suffering in the world. That part is heartbreaking and totally daunting, but that's not all. We also get to see the extraordinariness of life and how amazing it is that life exists and continually recreates itself in an incredible, spectacularly, mind-boggling, lawful way when we see clearly our awe and our thanksgiving for the very fact that life is happening makes it impossible to do anything other than address the pain in the world, try to heal it, and hope to never add one single drop of pain or suffering to it. As our understanding increases, our hearts become more responsive. We become compassionate people. We become the compassionate people we were meant to be. That's the whole point of practice. That's what's supposed to happen. It was a very long pause because they had gone from measured, thoughtful teacher to thundering preacher in about 30 seconds. And he said, very good. So... It is very good. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Not having amazing experiences, not glowing in the dark or vibrating with rapture. We're supposed to become kinder. And I think that's happening. I really think it's happening with me. Uh, I saw it the other night. Um, How many people watched the... um, uh, Watch the ball fall down. I have to put back so I have everybody. I don't want to just at me. There we are. Okay. How many people watch the ball fall down on Times Square on New Year's Eve? Just me? No, Bonnie watched uh, and Jane watched. I watch all the time. And the thing that was different is I watched all the time. I turned it on at a quarter to nine. I didn't start earlier than that. I turned it on a quarter to nine, prepared not to like it. 
And I could hear the story in my mind starting up as I turned it on. So you're thinking, why did she turn it on? It was not the light. I'm going to have the, the dialogue in my mind or the monologue in my mind. It, it was, I was going to, all these people have uh, on this cold night, and it turned out to be raining. It's a cold, raining night in New York, have gone hours before to stand on Times Square in cordoned off areas in order to be there. And we had put on funny hats because the, the restaurants and the clubs around were giving out funny hats. They're wearing costumes, they're wearing funny hats, they're standing in the rain. Uh, in order to count 10, 9, 8, 7, and then shout out Happy New Year, they have two uh, uh, hosts who are by midnight too cold and a lot, who knows what, but the, the jokes are not funny and they're a little bit, anyway, well, they're not usually funny to me. And so I have a, my, a lot of criticism. This is before I even turn it on, I'm thinking, so then you might ask, why are you turning it on? But that's another question. So I turn it on. And accidentally, I was so moved by it because here were people really in the world's in a terrible shape. And we're just hardly getting over. We're not even maybe getting over from the COVID. And there's a war in, in Ukraine. And not to speak of the whole climate is falling apart. And not to think about the whole planet is imperiled. And not to think even about the fact that everybody knows it or could know it. This is the first time in history that we're in the middle of a pandemic somewhere and a war somewhere and something else somewhere devastating. And everybody knows it. That World War II passed without whole populations knowing that it was happening somewhere in the mountains of Bolivia or somewhere in in Kazakhstan, the whole world went by. But now everybody knows COVID was all over the place and the air degradation is all over the place. Everything is all over the place. And everybody knows it. And I looked at all these people and I thought, look at this. They've come out because human beings want to play. They want to say, okay, happy new year. We want, we're starting again. There's something very hopeful of starting again. We start with a notebook with nothing in it. Who knows? As uh, I, I've actually said so many times that I think that my friend Gil Franzdell's uh, uh, definition of equanimity is the best of anyone that I know. Gil says, equanimity is the ability to say, let's see what happens next. I love that. I just think that's so brilliant. Next means there's going to be a next. It means this is not the end of the world right now. Something else can still happen. Something can be done. And I could be a part of it. So I turn on, and here's everything going on, and I'm waiting for my tirade of criticism. I was thinking the other day of my mother's voice saying, look at everybody doing this kind of idiotic getting dressed up but you know the truth is it's not my mother's voice my mother is gone 60 years already more just about 60 years so it's not my mother's voice it's my voice and I have to own it you know it is me that I was prepared to hear doing my litany of negativity and instead 
I just thought people were wonderful. They're dressed up in these ridiculous things. It's raining, it's snowing. Not snowing. It was raining, it was cold. Uh, there was a woman there who uh, was all dressed up. She looked like maybe they had been to it. Anyway, lame dress. Uh, uh, and I thought she was maybe cold. And she was visibly pregnant. She said, oh, yeah, this is our first baby. So we're not going to be able to be out next year. So we came to celebrate it this year. And my mother's voice, which we've already established as my voice, almost is saying, you're pregnant. Don't be out in the rain and the cold with people. Go home. <laughs> Take care of yourself. And it didn't. It did that. You know that thing about whenever is heard, a discouraging word. I couldn't, my mind was not making discouraging words. And I thought about that, that song about whenever it's heard a discouraging word. How about a mind that doesn't say discouraging words? That says, go for it, have this baby, celebrate this, celebrate the baby. Celebrate your, the fact that you can still go out and stand out in that cold. I was so surprised. They, and actually, by the time the ball fell down on Times Square, I had to turn it off because they started to play Old Lang Syne. And by that time, I was in such a warmly supportive coalition in my mind with everybody out celebrating that I, I was really emotionally, I started to cry about all the people in my own life who aren't here anymore, the old acquaintance people got. And I thought, I can't take it. You know, I'm too emotionally labile. Uh, when you think about it, I, I have a page in my journals where I, I'm keeping track of it, and the page is getting more and more crowded of people no longer in this plane of existence. My mother died. 60 years ago, and my father 40 years ago, and and my friends recently, and my husband two years ago, and the, lot, the list is getting longer. And in the moment, however, in the moment, the spectacle of joy in life as it was unfolding was so nurturing for me. And I realized what I thought in the moment as I'm thinking, you know, go for it for this woman out, pregnant, whatever, in the cold. It's good for you, you know, go for it. And I thought, you know what, I think my practice is working. Because I came to that fully prepared for the mind to grumble, and it didn't. That accidentally it got kinder. Do you get that? Is that as important a story as I think it is? Because I keep, I, you know, there's sometimes where my mind all of a sudden where it's previously grumbled in response for somebody to somebody it says you know what can they do you know this is the way it is and i think this is what i have been practicing for i actually want to change my mind that uh, the classical um, magazine many years ago used to have a um, uh, one day celebration in, in Central Park every summer. And they called it Change Your Mind Day. And, uh, I, I read that as the subtlety of, you know, when you meditate and you practice Dharma, it changes your mind. But, uh, 
And I, when I first wrote a book, the first book, I wanted to call it, I changed my mind because I, I already knew that I had changed my mind. I'm glad I did. My, my publishers didn't let me do that. They said, no one will get it. No one will buy it. You can't, you have to call it. It's easier than you think. That's not true. It's harder than you can imagine. It's <laughs> 45 years later. And I'm just saying, you know, I think I changed my mind. I'm getting sweeter. So it's not, a, it's easier. Where is it's easier than you think? I, it's good that I found it. Here it is. This is it. And it was very, very popular in its time. And I, it's probably because it promises the e- it's easier than you think. It's a very good book, by the way. But um, it's not easier than you think. It's harder than you can imagine to actually change habits of mind. It's pretty easy to understand that the cause of suffering is um, the inability to accept what's not what's frightening to you in some way, what's displeasing to you. That's easy to understand. But to change your mind so that it greets it with sympathy and empathy and kindness and compassion, it's 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 it takes time and it's difficult, but it is doable. So it's not true, but it also is true. I think what we do is convert the mind to kindness. And the and the kindness, you know, we we it's eleven o'clock. Oh, that's all right. Because we didn't sit. We can sit. This so doesn't remind me of what we used to do in the old days when we came individually to Spirit Rock, which is good. Because we're not in the old days, we're in the new days. So we have to figure out what else to do. I think that uh, to the degree that my mind knows, now I want to start that sentence differently. I had this book out here because I was going to uh, uh, teach the Four Noble Truths in uh and I am right now starting to refer to them. How many people, everybody here, know, well, I don't know if everybody knows, but the Four Noble Truths is what the Buddha enunciated after his experience of enlightenment. That, that's a very big sentence, and I could take each phrase and make a two-hour talk on it. But I'm going to say about the 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 fruit of the, in that story, the fruit of the Buddha's awakening and saying, okay, now I have it. This is the, this is the way it is. I'm free now because I see how the mind works to create suffering. And I'm free of that because I really get it. This is what I get. I get that life is difficult for everyone. And the reason that I had this book out is I looked it up. I thought it was true that when I wrote it in there, it says life is difficult, period for everyone and it's italicized and then it goes on and i think that was a thing that took me a long time to really assimilate to grok in some deep way it's not just difficult for the people who have aids the people who have covid 
the people who have type 1 diabetes, the people who are the subjects of racism or sexism or uh, any of the isms that still uh, trouble the world. They are terrible things to have, all of those, be the subject of. And uh, certainly when one's mind is um, attuned to the fact that there are things that cause pain in the world, uh, that uh, well-wishing arises if you notice it enough. But I think it's the noticing that it is ubiquitous, that everyone has that. Even people who are rich, even people who are not imperiled by storms or floods, even people who live so... None of the troubles of life, so that none of the troubles of life, uh, of living at this point in this time, are really immediately troublesome to them. Life is difficult for everyone because once we are in a life, we connect with it and things become dear to us and we want to have them well. That we are all subject to change and loss. And in the best of societies, in the best of cultures, if we had come to the end of wars and if we came to the end of selfishness and greed and we shared on this planet we would still be left with the truth that once we are born and we take birth we fall in love with being alive and we want to stay that way and we fall in love with our people if they're kind with us or other people and no matter the best of circumstances the big thing that human beings have to lose, get uh, learn is getting used to grief and loss. That happens to everybody. That's why I think, you know, uh, maybe I was in a particularly vulnerable place when they began to play Old Lang Syne because I was thinking about all the people in my mind who I used to have that I don't have now. I have new people in my life now who are very, very dear to me. And to the degree that I get it about we are always vulnerable to loss, to that degree am I thinking, may nothing happen to anybody that I know. And then by a very small stretch out, may nothing bad happen to anybody outside who I know that somebody else knows. How about those 80 women yesterday who got up to the news that their sons were killed in a war that doesn't make any sense to anybody? There's one more thing to say. I'm really hoping I'm saying this all because I changed all my notes. I was going to say all these things, but not in this order. So here's the four noble truths. Life is, life comes with pain and difficulty and loss. That's the first noble truth. And when I, the second noble truth, and then we'll go through them again. Second noble truth is we create suffering every time that we are unable to accommodate the changes and the losses in our life. 
In other words, we are already uncomfortable because of a loss or a pain or a grief or a disappointment. And then we make it worse by the stories we tell about it or the or the pain that we feel from it. And mostly from the pain of feeling, why me? Why did this happen to me? Things happen to people. That's like the beginning of wisdom. In the list of wise understanding and wise aspiration, the first two things on that list, wise understanding is that things happen. In this world, things happen. Those 80 soldiers were in a war. Airplanes fall down and everybody on them dies. And it's a tremendous shock to anybody. And you say, well, it's, it's different because they didn't get shot down purposely. It happened accidentally. But the loss is the same. They're the same, not here. The, the first noble truth is that things happen. Things happen to people, including endings. What I've been teaching for the last year, really, uh, last year and a half, is not only including endings, is including beginnings. Um, at the same time that my husband was in the two years prior to his death, uh, almost two years ago now, um, my grandson's wife was starting, was pregnant with our first great grandbaby. So he died and he got to actually see his great grandbaby born. So there are beginnings. I think about the fact that people like puppies so much. How many people here like puppies? Do you ever see puppies of peculiar species? Like there are some dogs that are just kind of like regular dogs. There's some dogs that are particularly like, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody who's got a peculiar dog. But there are some dogs that have very tremendous jowls and uh, drool a lot. And uh, then, you know, you, you wouldn't look at it and say how cute when it weighs 110 pounds. But when it's just born, it's awfully cute with those baby jowls. And, you know, there are, I think baby anythings look good. And I think it's because, like, baby people look good. Because they look like a miniature. And you don't know what they're going to be. They have presumably a life of change and to the to to those dogs' parents. They look exactly right. And uh to everybody's parents, they look really wonderful. Because they're new and they're there's something about hopefulness. And so it's not just that there is grief and loss. There is beginnings and grief, uh, beginnings and hope and plans and aspirations. And then a life unfolds. And I think always about the grief and the loss being um, eventually manageable because of those two things that I just said. First of all, Loss, aging and loss and grief, illness and loss are part of the fabric of life. That's just what happens. And getting born is part of the fabric of what happens. I had a friend once who said, if you don't like that fact, you came to the wrong planet. And I think that 
that person, they were being a little bit glib at that time. Don't like it. It came to the wrong planet. I, I don't think it's funny because the person, because in the moment of loss, it's tremendously grief stricken. And I think that the way that it assimilates is that eventually, it's in the same past as everything else ever was. And it's in the same beginning of everything else it actually is. Here we are on day four of this particular year. We don't know how it's going to unfold. Maybe it's going to rain here in Marin for 40 days and 40 nights or something. Maybe that wouldn't be a good thing because we'd get too much flooding or something. Who knows? It's all, we don't know. But to be able to say, this is wisdom, really knowing. Somehow knowing in one's most profound, unshakable knowing is that things happen. Sometimes people get very old. My husband was 89 when he died. That's a long life. And he was in great health for 80 some years of it. And he died with the whole family around him taking care of him. So in the way of dying, it was the best of all possible. But still, everybody misses him. But he has his progeny coming up and getting on the line for that. I used to ask people, I didn't quite do the Four Noble Truths. First of all, is that life comes with pain and uncomfortableness and difficulty just because it does. And the second noble truth is that we complicate it when we are unable to accept what's true. Un unable, you know, it's the right word for it. I came about this yesterday. I was thinking about it. accommodated. You don't like it, but to accommodate it, the ability to say this happened I remember having a friend years ago talking about some really unfortunate event in their life and saying about it, it wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And I thought that's really the magical sentence, isn't it? It isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And how many times we have to say that, really? Of course, there are a lot of things that I want, but there are things that I don't want that I got as well. Somebody said, uh, maybe it was Sharon Salzberg, who says the problem is we take life personally, like why me? And this morning I was just thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, I um, I remember the other day on New Year's I was teaching and I told the story about my mother-in-law uh, who died uh, 40 years ago, I think. Yeah, about 40 years ago. Uh, with whom I had, I, I had a lovely relationship with her. And uh, I just remembered that uh, she, uh, uh, this is in terms of take things personally. I remember leaving with her from the apartment building that she lived in. And we would be going out somewhere and she'd walk out the door and she'd say, just my luck, it's raining. Like the cosmos conspired to have it rain just then, because she was going out. That is really 
taking it a little too personally that this is happening on Academy. Just my luck, it's raining. And I thought about it this morning. I was going to tell you that story of in the, in the sense of the problem that the mind gets in when it takes things personal. But the first noble truth is things happen. And the second noble truth is when we elaborate them, take them personally, um, are not able to say, shoot, I wish this hadn't happened fully or whatever else more dramatically want to say, but it happened. And then I thought, you know, when I tell that story about my mother-in-law walking out the door and saying, just my luck, it's raining, everybody always laughs. And it's 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 pretty cute, you know. That, uh, But I thought this morning, it's not nice that I tell that story because I do it because everybody laughs. And it's a dramatic, it's a way of dramatizing that moment or really teaching uh I think really teaching in a good way, in a in a clear way, the problem of taking things personally, just my luck. Then you have to think, well, I have bad luck. Why would I have bad good luck? With anyway, and I thought I shouldn't tell that story because it's not nice. I'm making my mother-in-law out to be foolish. Then I thought I don't tell a story to make her out to be foolish, but I just all of a sudden thought it's not so nice. I mean, I really loved her, and she totally loved me. So then I thought, well, fully, I can't tell that story anymore because it's not nice. It portrays her as not being very, but she wasn't very, I don't know. And I think you may have caught me in the middle of a moment of real scrutiny about, you know, sometimes when you tease about something, it's like a tease and it might not be so kind. So maybe if I stopped telling that story, I wouldn't be so funny or so clever or so tell such a good story that people would remember it, but I'd be well behaved and I wouldn't have to think about it. Anyway, okay, here we go. Life is comes with pain and difficulty. We make it worse when we personalize it. We could stop personalizing it and we could have minds that are interested and um, peaceful. We could not stir up our minds. The effect of saying, why me, why me, why me, uh, is the mind gets unpeaceful because it's fighting with what's happening. I remember saying to myself, you don't fight with experience because experience wins. You know, that you don't fight with life because life wins. Say, okay. I'm trying to figure out particular. I have a friend who is marvelously good at saying, I wonder what I could possibly learn from this bad experience while it's happening, as if it could turn into a, you know, a learning experience. But my, (laughs) I've decided that that friend whom I love a lot has capacities that I don't have yet, that when something really uncomfortable is happening to her, and she says, I wonder what I could learn from that. I really think that's lovely. How many people here do that? You do that, Victoria. Good for you. Anybody else? Says, I wonder what I could learn from this. There's Sarit. Good for you. I have to look on these other. Alicia. Alicia, where are you? There's no picture. Where's Alicia? 
There you are. Did you want to say something? Alicia, do you want to turn off? Oh. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's something that I have, uh, it doesn't come naturally. Absolutely not. But it's something that I do strive to do. I, I want to strive to do that. Well, I'm right. <laughs> There's my friend. <laughs> he was so cute because he just stuck up his little head. Is he a he? She's a little, she's a girl. She's a girl. But thank you very much for bringing her to class. And thank you very much for saying I strive to do that. Because I could, I could, I'm thinking to myself, why am I telling myself the story? It's great that my friend can do that and I can't. So far, I haven't done that. But I think there's a way of saying maybe I could, maybe I just learned or reminded myself that I could take that on as a thing. Thank you. Anyway, Alicia, thank you. Anybody else has something to say about that? Rivka. Well, whenever I used to come home from work and tell my husband what a bad day and what somebody said to me and how awful they were, he goes, that person is your Buddha. That person is your teacher. They are teaching you something by your, about yourself. <laughs> Did you have a kind response to that, Rivka? Yeah, I say, shut well, up. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if everybody thought about that. Somebody else tells you, listen, you could have a more mature, da-da-da. But now that we have it out, you know, if we are, anybody gets that thing, you don't have to talk. Just tell me if that was a useful interchange, I think. Anyway. Let me tell you the fourth noble truth, then we can talk about all of them. Because the fourth noble truth, as you know, is a li- might know, is a list of things to practice. If your mind is not already recognizing when things get worse, because in a minute I'm going to tell you what my current practice is, uh, and doing something about it how to take on uh, purposely the practice of developing wise understanding, which means wisdom. I mean, it's a tautology if I say it that way, but anyway. And wise aspiration. I think that's a very good way to live. I'd like to do that if I could not take it personally. And I'd like to do that. And I could do it. Uh, according to those uh, eightfold path parts, by watching what I say and watching what I do and uh, being sure that the kind of work I do is noble in the sense of not creating more suffering in the world and uh, cultivating uh, clarity of understanding about what's happening, which would be right mindfulness and Right concentration, which really means steadiness in the mind. And the one I left out was right effort, which means correcting a thought or correcting a, or wanting to change something as it arises. So I was thinking about the specific way in which right wise effort is, uh, defined in textbooks is it says it sounds simplistic it says replacing in the mind when 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 uh 
when you notice that the mind is filled with um, wholesome thoughts, you say, good for me, I have wholesome thoughts in my mind. When it's not, and you notice no wholesome thoughts in my mind, then you put some wholesome thoughts in it, like may all beings be peaceful and happy. And noticing when there are unwholesome thoughts in the mind, like what kind of an idiot goes on the subway on New Year's Eve and the rain, and that's an unwholesome thought. Uh, when your mind uh, doesn't have any unwholesome thoughts in it, you say, good, don't have any unwholesome thoughts. But and for a while, I thought, well, that's really silly to say, you know, it's like, one thing, keep your mind wholesome. We don't have to have four different things. But I think it is it is one thing, and it is four things. Because this is where it comes down to, this is where, what my practice is. People say, um, how much time do you practice every day? And what I'd like, I say, what I'd like to be able to say is, from the moment I get up in the morning until the moment I go to sleep, which does not mean at all that I sit on my Zafu all day long or that I do walking meditation or prayers or whatever all day long. I want all day long to know what's going on and specifically during the all day long to know whether or not ill will has arisen in my mind. That's my whole practice. That's not the whole practice. The truth is, Every day I sit a little bit. I sit down on so I don't sit on the Zafu anymore because my back doesn't support that. But I sit somewhere with my eyes open and out the window or closed, not out the window, without input coming in every day. Just in the same way as um, there are things that are good for me to do, um, like brush my teeth or go to the gym or things that are wholesome and giving my mind a rest consciously saying now we're resting is a good thing because then it has a, a baseline of knows this is mind resting and this is mind agitating or not resting and my main practice is noting throughout the day so I sit down every day somewhere for some period of time and probably several times a day not for so long, maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes, because I, I, I'm called to do that. Lots of things go on all day. Somebody said the other day they were going to write a book called something like, When Things uh, Get Difficult, Take a Breath, something like that. That's a nice title. But uh, I I wouldn't do that because then... It makes it sound like um, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of knowing how your breathing is. I want to say, when the mind gets troubled, stop. And that the, that the, that the operative instruction is just stop whatever it's doing. And if, it, if taking a breath in and out will stop the mind from its whatever it's doing, that's good. But stop, pause, wait, like push the pause button and don't do anything. And if taking a breath in and out is a way of doing that, or taking a long breath in and out is really a way of relaxing the mind, 
You know what might even be a better instruction? If, if ill will, negativity, aversion arises in the mind, pause and relax. Maybe relax is the operative word. Vimla Ramsey, who's an old man now and not teaching anymore, is a um, not so well-known, but I think well-thought-of um, mindfulness teacher in the Midwest. I remember reading his work some years ago. I, I almost went on retreat with him, but it didn't work out. But his main instruction was when the mind ties itself in a knot, relax. Do whatever you need. Relax not in the sense of put your feet up, but take your mind. It ties itself in a knot with a thought more often than not. This is this, this is that, this is the other. I don't like it. I do like it. This shouldn't be happening. Stop. And don't think of the thought. Don't convince yourself this shouldn't be happening. Just relax the mind. I've been doing that, especially since recently, because I discovered that what happens when I have, maybe I see somebody, or maybe I notice on, on uh, my email that uh, there's an email from somebody that my mind winces a little bit about, or I see that my phone is ringing and I can't pick it up right now, but I'm going to have to call back. And it's not somebody that I, at that moment, so my mind winces. When you, that, that might be. Then when my mind winces, relax. You know, everybody knows that word, wince. That, you know, can you, can you just, can you make your mind wince? Try, Dwayne. Think of something that would cause your mind to wince. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and, well, maybe you can't do it on command, but um, maybe you don't want to do it on command. But who doesn't get it about when your mind winces? Well, who does get it? Put up both hands. Like a goal. Okay, goal. There are things that I think about, like if I think, ah, that so-and-so just left a message for me. I don't think about so-and-so and why I think kindly about them and how am I going to change my mind about them or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just stop and say, relax the mind. I might, as a matter of fact, take a breath in and out because that keeps everything else out. What always happens for me when I do that? So my mind relaxes from its wince. It remembers other things about that person that mitigate that first startle. They did say that unpleasant thing yesterday, but they also this, that, I've known them 40 years, they're, you know, whatever it is. Enough other factors are there that the mind relaxes and it can't hold on to its its wince and then sees that in the middle 
you know, the story that comes to mind with that. And then we are going to sit. We're supposed to sit a little bit. Uh, I have a friend whose father died. I may have told some of you the story before. A couple of years ago, and he had not spoken. She had not spoken. My friend's mother had not spoken to a brother of hers in 30 years. They had such a bad falling out. They didn't live so far away. Everybody lived in California. And some other brother let the estranged brother know that his sister was dying. And uh, so he came to visit her. She was in her bed. My friend, whose mother it was, was in the room. And the brother came in, and whatever her name is, let's make up that her name is Edith or something. It wasn't Edith. But he came in the door and he said, Edith, I'm sorry. And she said, so am I. And 30 years have gone by. You think that somebody in those 30 years could have said Edith or Jim or whatever his name was, I'm sorry. But he gets so winced into a position. But he can't do that. Then you say, what's the magic word that would cause your mind to wince? Or unwince? I find that story, and I guess as long as I'm earning my keep as a storyteller, I can't throw out all my stories. But now I'm telling that story and I'm thinking, maybe that's not a nice story. I think it's all right to tell because I'm not using anybody's names. But I think it's all right. What do you think? Is that an all right story to tell? Or is it, uh, did you learn from it? This is the last thing that I'm going to say. And then we are going to say because this is definitely new for this year. Might have been new last year as well. But for a lot of my practice years on retreat and by myself and teaching years, I would lead a retreat or I'd be sitting on a retreat or I'd be sitting at home. And I would think to myself after I had been sitting or teaching or whatever, I would think to myself, How was that, what I just did? People say sometimes, it was a really good sitting. My mind was steady, or it was clear, or it was tranquil, or I felt so warm and relaxed, which is all lovely, very nice. But I decided that that was not a fruitful question to ask, how was that sitting? Because it doesn't matter how it was that it was clear or tranquil or whatever it was, or that it was agitated and confused and unpleasant and uh, nauseating. I mean, certainly more pleasant to have A type than B type. But how was it doesn't, doesn't make any progress in terms of what did you learn from it? And I'm thinking now that what did you learn from it is the operative question. Like, if I learned that if I stop in the middle of my mind ranting about somebody and take a breath, and I find that 
six other things come up in my mind that are also true about that person that take some of the cringe out of my feelings about them. Did it liberate my feelings? Did it add to my understanding? Did it correct a misunderstanding? Did I learn that a tranquil, forgiving mind is the cause of um, pleasure in the mind and body? Did I learn that? I, I just came in my mind and I don't remember it. Uh, there's a line from T.S. Eliot and it, that in the Four Quartets where he says, costing not more, not less than everything. But I don't remember where it is. Not less than everything. It costs giving up all your opinions. It doesn't even, it doesn't really mean giving up, giving up all your opinions. It means not being held, held, come held captive by your, your opinions, by not clinging to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, free from being held captive, not confused by sense desires, is not born again into a world of suffering. I would like for us to sit a little bit, finally. <laughs> uh, why don't we really, this could be a do-it-yourself sit. Uh, I'll start you out. And maybe we'll go to, maybe we'll do a little bit of uh, Vimla Ramsey about Whenever the mind takes up something and gets caught by it, you could say to yourself, relax. We could sit for 15 minutes and then we can talk about it. Sit in a way that's comfortable. Feel your body sitting. If it's comfortable for you to feel your body, whole body breathing, Feel your body breathing out. 
And then breathing in again, as if it's reaching out a little bit into the space around you and towards everybody else. And then the breath coming out. And then the next breath in. Let's try for 15 minutes to stay more or less with the mind focused on the body moving this way and that way, this way and that way. You feel your whole body or maybe just your chest opens and relaxes and opens and relaxes. And see if perhaps your mind uh, will be aided in relaxing by uh, picking a word to say like breathing in, breathing out, in, out, in, out. You can stop saying the word when you see that you're there with it. And then every once in a while, if you notice that your mind is filled with a story, or fall asleep, or become irritable, or become anything else. If you say to yourself, come back, relax. Let's try that. Let's try just saying, relax. Nothing to do, just relax. And we'll do that for 15 minutes. We'll see how it was for everyone.
when you're ready, open your eyes. Let's see if you can find your person that you picked out before. I have very loud sound of rain outside my window, which I realize everybody's not in Marin, so they don't have that. We have 10 minutes to talk to each other. What did you think about? How was that sitting? No, wrong, wrong, wrong. What did you learn from it? I'm kind of coming in a minute, Caroline. Try to find something that you learned from it. Among other things, I learned how exquisite uh, the rain sound sounds like, and I began to speculate about whether it sounded better than it did, uh, that it sounded as beautiful as it did because um, of the rain. So that kept distracting. I, I, my mind, it didn't keep distracting me. My mind distracted itself with the sound of the rain. There you go. Now I've got everybody back. So Carolyn and Lisa Marie want to say something. Anybody else wants to say, then put yourself in that line. Carolyn. I I am grateful to you, as usual, and I am grateful for the word relax. Um, My spiritual group of the 80s and sub- subsequent couple of decades was addicted to perfection. And if you couldn't sit and meditate correctly for 40 minutes, don't bother. So the joy, the joy, when my mind goes off to wonder if I talk too much, or my mind goes off to wonder, I go, relax. Bless you. Oh, thank you very much. Also, uh, I want to really say that that's such a sweet response to it because you could say well it does or it doesn't or i'm helpful or that not to get into any conversation with anything but just relax it's really just like such a sweet thing to say and it makes the mind less sticky i think and that's a, that's really you know we're personifying the mind but i think it is less sticky so thank you very much carolyn lisa marie well, I'll say what one of the moments that stood out for me, but then I also would like to go back to your question about, is it kind to say these things? Um, I had a moment where I thought, well, it's, there's nothing, where I felt very calm. And then I thought, well, there's nothing happening here. As if there's nothing to be gained or learned from there. Um, which is actually kind of a good question to ponder. Um But what I wanted to say about the question of, is it kind to tell stories of other people that where maybe they are 
I don't know how you want to say it, but the story above your, I think it was your sister-in-law or so. Um, and the, the, the wincing happens inside of me, but it's self-recognition. And so it's valuable. Mm-hmm. I see it as not that other person, but as like oh, a bit of an ouch. That's me. It, and then I have a moment to say, to ask myself, do I want to do something about that? Well, I think you were both very much for both of those. Um, very much for both of those, because you know, I, I, uh, and I want to go back actually to your first thing. Nothing much is happening. What <laughs> um, what I began to think, what I I hope I noticed when nothing much is happening is what a pleasure it is when nothing much is happening. That, that sort of get my mind out of the habit of what should I think about now. I remember sometimes coming on retreats and saying, oh, good. Now I have 17 days or four days or how many days to think about all those things that I didn't have time to think about. And that mostly uh, I, I heard my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, one time say, "Nothing, really nothing is worth thinking about. And I thought, oh, how can you say such a thing like that? There are so many things that you could speculate about. And I'm pretty sure that what he meant was that emptiness is worth thinking about or uh, that kind of sly inference about it. But that uh, a moment of the mind really resting, not thinking about anything, is a moment of it noticing that it can rest, that peace is possible. In this very mind, in this very body. I love that. Uh, it's a line from uh, Upandita's book that I don't remember the name of, but it, that uh, peace is possible. It's the third noble truth. And I'm mm-hmm. very happy that you point that. Where are you, Lisa Marie, in the world? Petaluma. All right. Okay. Just up the road. So it's raining on you, too. Yes, definitely. Yes. How about you, Victoria? Uh, this was fa- just fabulous. What a great way to start the new year. I was, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting <laughs> until this day came up. Um, I, a couple of things. I, as a child, um, watching Bambi and Bumper, no, is his name? No, Thumper, Thumper, the rabbit says, um, he says, he says, my mother taught me if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. <laughs> And I, um, that impressed me even as a child that, that sort of, (laughs) you're going to open your mouth, make sure it's something kind and nice that you say. Um, Because I tend to be very, I mean, it didn't stick because I'm very critical usually, unfortunately. Um, But also you've redeemed the word relax for me. Um, My best friend is constantly saying relax because he's a very laid back person and I'm very anxious all the time. And he's like every other word out of his mouth is relaxed. And I was starting to hate that word so much. So thank you for making it <laughs> sort of redeeming it for me because um, it felt it felt like a good word today. And oh, then la- last of all, I just wanted to say about the humor thing, too, because I think um, I, I really also um, agree with Lisa Marie. Um, one thing I love more than life itself is Jewish humor. And so much of Jewish humor for for centuries and centuries and centuries, because of all the suffering, I think, is um, it's a way of coping 
with with all the suffering and and difficulties in life and persecution and you know everything you can imagine and i think the humor is richer because of that so when you were you sounded you know sort of self-conscious about you know people laughing about your the story about you know uh the rain do i deserve the rain or whatever <laughs> I I immediately actually thought of this centuries, this this rich, rich heritage that we have of Jewish humor from all over the world. Um, how and that's that's to me evidence of how we can learn from difficulty and from suffering and we can transform it into something that's it's a wisdom. But humor always leavens the the mixture so beautifully. So I just wanted to say that. Well, thank you very much, Victoria, because. You know, many people have commented on uh, it's not uh, it's not surprising that a people or a culture that has been mocked a lot counteracts it by saying, I'm going to mock myself before you mock me. So you can't get me. I already did it. Um, and, you know, there's so many things to talk about, um, like um, uh, the other part of stories is. Uh, when they're funny and they're not hurtful to anybody specifically, you remember them, you know, that, uh, so th- they're all things to think about. I am very happy to be back. I'll be back. Uh, <laughs> did you ever hear the expression, God willing, and the creek don't rise? Today in Marin, we're all saying, God willing, and the creek don't rise. May we have a lot of more rain from this. May the creek not rise so much that it's problemsome. And no amount of saying it will cause the creek to do anything other than what it is going to do by its own self. So uh, it's lovely to see you all. And uh, take good care of yourself. And I'll see you on the 25th, I think, which is three weeks from today. Take good care of yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.